Well, thank you, Joni, very much. I appreciate that. She's one of our hosts each Sunday, welcomes you and kind of gives you the lay of the land. So good to see all of you. As the kids are leaving, I want to begin this morning and kind of give you a, uh, an understanding of the text we're looking at by talking about a situation that occurred last week in this room. Now, I'm not sure if this section heard it, but over in this section, there was uh, a lady that I know, many of you know her, she came to our church years ago, but she came last Sunday at 8.30, sat about right here where Bonnie is, and for the entire service... She, it was like she had a conversation with someone next to her. I'm going to say this kindly, but I'm being honest and factual. Do you remember that? If you're here, just kind of nod like, yeah, we were aware of that. Now, as it first started, some of you were like, man, does Todd know what's going on? Like, I'm, I was well aware of it. I'm not totally deaf. I like my music loud, but it's uh, not affecting me too much that way. But I have a personal conviction that kindness at a first encounter goes a long way. And so I just don't ever want to embarrass anyone. That's not my goal. It's not the goal of this church. We love the fact that seekers and curious people and skeptics are always looking to attend and checking things out. We, we appreciate that. We don't hold back on truth. But we want to always dialogue about truth in a credible, uh, kind way. So I just thought, you know what? Um, I know her. I've known her for years. Um, I'll speak to her afterwards. And I just kept my train of thought. Some of you felt very uncomfortable. In fact, I would say some of you felt more uncomfortable than me, which was very kind. You sent me emails and notes and talked to me like, hey, were you okay? Well, you know, was everything all right? And, and uh, I appreciate that about you. You were just trying to guard and be aware of maybe anything that could be odd. But here's what I thought was interesting about that. All she did was use a little tiny muscle in her mouth. Did you know that? She just had, it was like she's on the phone the whole time, wasn't it? Just having conversations. But everyone in the room, for the most part, maybe not this section. I'm, let me take a vote here if you were here last week in this service. Did you hear her at all over here? Oh, Josh is nodding. Andy, Laura, I didn't know that. Wow, this is even better for the sermon illustration. This is awesome. <laughs> so she just used a very small muscle in her mouth called the tongue. I mean, it's yay big. You can look at yours and see what I mean, you know. And yet, how many of you were affected? Most people. And if you weren't, you probably heard about it. This is the point James makes in chapter 3. The tongue is a very little thing, but it can have a big impact. So turn there, would you, James 3? While you're turning, just my weekly reminder that the God who wrote this Bible has left us and revealed to us one overarching passion that His glory be made known among the nations and it's our joy at First Family to make His passion our mission. Are you there yet, James 3? What James does in these first 12 verses is I think he warns teachers specifically about their tongue, he then expands that to helping everyone see that it's something we all struggle with. And in one sense, he doesn't really give a lot of answers within these 12 verses. He just makes statements about the, um, the situation at hand, how something really small can really bring 
a lot of impact for good or for bad. That's mainly what he does here. And so I want us to see the text this morning in basically two ways. We're going to see, first of all, the principle of proportion stated or explained or illustrated. We'll talk about that a bit. And then we're going to see the problem of inconsistency exposed, which the minute we get there, we're going to all have a loads of conviction, okay? Because if, is there anyone here who's not violated um, God's word in regards to their tongue? No one here. No one here is exempt from saying, you know, I've said things that were hurtful, that were sinful, that were carnal. I've had moments, maybe I've had days, maybe I've had situations where, man, this little muscle in my mouth just got away from me. I did not bridle it. And, man, I, I, it just caused a, a wreck. It wreaked havoc. I mean, we've all been there. And so we're going to talk about the con- inconsistency involving our tongues. I think the next few weeks we'll look more at how to deal with the tongue. But at least for now, we're just going to see the problem of inconsistency following the principle of proportion and see how the Holy Spirit would teach us and kind of weigh in on us this morning, okay? I will do this this morning a little differently. I think I'd like to take some questions after each section of Scripture. So we'll talk about the first eight verses a little bit and then we'll take maybe one or two questions and the same thing after verses 9 through 12. Some tips for those who ask questions. Here's how you can help me. I'm not going to say give me easy ones. I'm not going to say that to you. But if you're new, we do take questions live in the service. It's best if they're typically about something in the text, maybe a specific question about a verse or a, an issue or something I said that, that may be related to the, the biblical passage. I love how-to questions. I'm not trying to get away from those. But just understand, we are on a limited time frame here. I can answer how-to questions in my blog. I can be a little more expansive and get to that. But sometimes I'll get questions that are really have a long answer and I like those, but I don't have time for them here. So maybe I could just have you help me. If you, if you really want to ask me a question here live and you text it in, just try to make it as maybe specific, textual, and maybe about something uh, in relation to the passage. And we can try to address that for all of our knowledge. You can still send one in about larger issues, but they may not get addressed here. We'll probably do those in written form, okay? So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. And what I want to do is just kind of teach the text as we go through it today. I won't read it all at one time. I'll just teach it in these sections, answer a few questions, and then we'll wrap this up with a real good, simple take-home truth. Here's chapter 3 for us about taming the tongue. James is explaining the power of it. He says in verse 1 that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. He's speaking there to the dispersed Jews who are now outside of Jerusalem and other parts of that area. He says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness or a stronger type of judgment. So he's warning here in verse 1, seems to lay the groundwork for the remaining 11 verses. Now, it is a very specific warning. It is to whom? It is to teachers. And he says that people should not become teachers because they receive a greater or a stricter or a a stronger type of examination and so first of all to all our elders here anyone who teaches from this platform which is what elders do be aware of this verse first of all that we are under a more strict um, examination by the lord because of the role that we've accepted for that reason those of you who 
are looking at perhaps being an elder, those of you who are looking at teaching ministries in the church, even apart from being an elder, let's say you teach a lighthouse, teach a women's group, you lead in that way with our youth. If you're teaching, be aware here that you're using words to communicate doctrine. You're using words to communicate truth about God. And so your tongue is a a vital instrument in the work of the Lord. That's going to receive a greater, stronger examination here. So we should be careful and and, uh, diligent about entering into that. I I sense the Holy Spirit most of the week asking me to pause here and say something to you as, as a church. Because while this is a strict and severe warning, be careful not Don't be too quick to become a teacher. I want to say this to you, that I am so thankful that you, as the body here, as the flock, allow me the time and the privilege of teaching you on a regular basis. I really, really deeply appreciate the way you free me up from a lot of extra things to do this one thing, teach and mobilize and equip the body. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, God gave pastors and teachers for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Um, Acts chapter 6, the deacons were mobilized to handle a lot of the physical aspects. So the, uh, the apostles in that situation could do the ministry of the word and prayer. And that's, a, that's a people ministry. And I just want to say to you a, a word of thank you that a lot of pastors I talk to, and this is uh, becoming more and more true 11 plus years now, we have a tremendously gifted staff that take care of most of the work of the church. We have a great set of, of deacons. And so the elders and I are able to really focus in on teaching, prayer, discipling kind of ministries. And I just want to say to you, I'm very grateful that you give me the time to do this because I think when pastors feel pressured for time, I don't mean that we, let me rephrase that. I think we all you know, try to get the most of our time we can, but when pastors feel like they have to do everything else and they can't focus on teaching well, that's one of the things that causes them then sometimes to not use their words well. Because they're hurrying and they're studying. They're not spending adequate time in prayer. They're not in touch with people about needs and what life's really like. And so they're just flippantly and quickly, and probably not from bad motives, but just saying, well, let me just throw something together real quick. And then they start blurting out things that they're not even sure they've double-checked and triple-checked and studied and prayed through and spent time with God on. And like, Does that make sense, guys? But I don't have that struggle here. I just want to say thank you from the depth of my heart on behalf of our family. Thank you for having a kind of body and to our elders and to our deacons and staff where I can spend a lot of time in this book and with you and in prayer. It helps me tackle this role with the least amount of fear and the right amount of proper awareness of what it entails. Does that make sense? You hear that okay? I just want to say thanks. I really appreciate it. And so here this word is to teachers and to all who would consider being a teacher to be careful because our words will be how we're judged. But I like what he does in verse 2. He says that we all stumble in many ways. So it's like he, he understands that teachers run a greater risk. Why? Because we just simply say more words. Are you with me on that? But no one is without exemption from the fact that that words are one of the ways we stumble. And so he moves from teachers to all in verse 2, and he says, we all stumble in many ways. In fact, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, 
He is a perfect man and able also to bridle his whole body. This is perhaps the key verse in the entire verse 12. He's saying here that if you actually don't stumble, the word there is offend, cause to trip, if that's not happening with you, then you're a perfect man. The word there, now watch this, is the same word used in chapter 1, verse 4. Look to your left, a tad, probably the same page or, or, or close to it. This is the result of trials and our perseverance under them. What's the result? That we become perfect. The word there is mature. It means complete. So when we remain under a trial, when we persevere and we watch our mouth, remember, verse 19 of chapter 1 said that we should be quick to hear God, slow to speak against God, slow to get angry at God. Remember that? Verse 26 of chapter 1 talked about bridling your tongue. That's the person who's not just thinking he's religious, but actually is a worshiping person. So there's a flow here, a thread here of how the tongue expresses what we really are. And so in chapter 3, he's just echoing again. He's saying this, if you can really master the use of your tongue, it's one of the first proofs you are mature. Now on the heels of that, it makes him wonder like, how many mature people are there in church sometimes, right? Because, man, I have, this is an air struggle for me at times. I suspect for some of you it is as well. And yet he says, though we all stumble, not stumbling is one of the ways to detect a mature, a perfect person. And then it says this, that if you can master your tongue, if you can master what you say, if you can learn not to stumble in that area, you can bring that same effect to your whole body. That's amazing, isn't it, guys? He says we're able to bridle our whole body. And then he begins to illustrate that in 3 through part of uh, 5 by talking about ships and horses. He says we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us and we guide their whole bodies as well. Think about that. A massive, powerful horse can be steered and controlled by a rider just by something you put in their mouth. The point is this. Something small is able to control something big. Make sense? Same thing with a ship. He talks about the rudder of a ship, how they're large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder. It's that item which uses the wind to direct the ship wherever the will of the pilot directs. So you get the picture, the analogy, the illustration. It's a small item. And yet it's controlling a big item. So he says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now the word boast here is normally looked at as a negative. If I were to say to you, well, you're a boastful person, you would hear that in a negative way. I don't think James here is using the word boast to describe a proud person. He's simply saying, The tongue is a small item, and yet it can do, and it has the potential to do great things. In fact, notice something in verse 5, would you? Here's a poetic device used by James that drives home the real point of these first few verses. You see the word small in verse 5? Then you see the word great? And then in verse 5, you see the word great, and then he ends with the word small. We call that a chiastic structure. If you were to use it in a symbolic way, it would be like, A-B-B-A. He starts with a word. He ends with the same word. 
and the words in the middle are the same. So you see what he does here? He almost ends this illustration about how something little can affect something big by saying, small, great, great, small. So again, it's just emphasis upon the, the theme here in these first few verses. It's the principle of proportion, and the tongue is underneath that principle. Your tongue is a little trapped between your two jaws, tucked in behind your lips. It is small. It's rarely seen, mostly heard. But did you know that that little muscle is able to control your whole body? That's what the text says. And if you want to control your body, start by controlling your tongue. He then lays out some other illustrations about the principle of proportion. Look with me, verse uh, 6. The tongue is a fire. And what I think he does here is he begins to show a progression from little to big. There's no real way to kind of get some of these verses. They're, they're more of a, um, I mean, they, they kind of escalate intensity. You'll kind of picture a lot of poetic language about them. In some sense, he almost seems hyperbolic. You can just hear James maybe just kind of going on a rant about the tongue here, okay? But look what he says. He says, this tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Now, I do believe in his mind, James is probably now speaking of the tongue apart from the use uh, or control by the Holy Spirit. This is not the tongue as led by God. This would be the tongue in its natural state, perhaps. He says, it's a fire, a world of unrighteousness, It is set among our members. There's a smaller idea. Catch that? It stains the whole body. That's a little larger. It sets on fire the entire course of life. That's even larger. And even that is set on fire by hell. So do you see the progression from little to small? And by the way, he uses the word unstained here in verse 6, I believe it is. You ought to connect that again back to chapter 1, verse 26. Who is the person who's truly a worshiping follower? Who's the rightly religious person? It's the one who brows his tongue. And then the text says it's unstained from the world. And yet one of the ways that we are stained is by the wrong use of our tongue, chapter 3 says. So, So don't underestimate this little muscle in your mouth. It is set among your members, just your body. And yet it can stain all of your body. (laughs) It can set on fire your entire course of life and those around you. And the truth was, when it acts that way, I think James is saying this, man, it has a hellish uh, root to it. Here's the principle of proportion laid out for us so beautifully in James chapter 3, verses 1 through about 8. He then goes again to explaining that this tongue... It cannot be tamed by mankind, unlike anything else which usually can. Now, think about the statement there. He says, every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Somewhat hyperbolic. We don't know that every single animal has been trained or tamed in some way. His point is this. There's an, there's a, there's an understanding that animals can be tamed. All kinds of birds and, and, and fish. And, but when you go to try to tame the tongue just by man-made power alone, he said no human being can do it. Now, 
we should all smile there and say, I have experienced that frustration. <laughs> when you've made a New Year's resolution, I'm going to use my words better this year apart from the Holy Spirit's power, apart from God's intervening work in your tongue and your mouth. It is a frustrating and futile exercise, isn't it? James here just simply states what we know is reality. Man, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So just understand, first of all, what James is saying here. This little thing, it can create massive havoc. It does good stuff as well in a large-scale fashion. It can, like a rudder, can wreck the whole ship or control a whole horse. The point he's making is that the tongue is underneath the principle of proportion. It's very small, but it has an incredible amount of power. So much power that if you could ever learn to control your tongue, you would actually learn to control your life. In fact, say these six words with me. Control your tongue, control your life. Say it with me. Ready? Control your tongue, control your life. And you can bark against that. You can say, I don't believe that. You can uh, remove yourself from it. But I think if there's one thing this text says, it's that. And so by God's authority and His Word, I want to say something to you. Here's a true statement. Control your tongue. Control your life. Say it with me. Ready? Control your tongue. Control your life. Any questions that maybe come in about this first set of verses, Ryan? Anything at all? Okay. Let's move on to the next set of verses, which he moves now from speaking about the principle of proportion to really the, the problem of inconsistency. And he exposes this. I think it may be something he exposes from within those believers, those, those dispersed brothers and sisters. Look what he says here. He says, with it, speaking of the tongue, this little thing which can cause a lot of either damage or good, he said, we bless our Lord and Father... And with it, we curse people. Now watch this addendum. Who were made in the likeness of God. I think what he's saying is this. You bless God with one side of your mouth, and then you curse people with the other. But the truth is, when you're cursing people, you might as well be cursing God because they're made in His image. He said it's hypocritical. It's, it's inconsistent. You can't separate the two and say, well, that's what I said to God. I said this to someone. Well, they're made in God's image. And so he, he really brings forth this type of inconsistency that was happening within this church. Now, where do you think this was happening? Here's where I think perhaps some of this illegitimate, unbiblical tongue use was occurring. It may have been in the situations described in chapter 2. Remember the issue of partiality? The rich man comes in, and with the tongue, they say, Hey, you sit right over here. You have a nice seat. And with that same tongue, they say to the poor person, just go stand over there. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't sound that demeaning or ridiculing. But do you see the inconsistency, though, by the same person treating one person based on externals with words that, that are uh, pretentious and yet with the same mouth depreciating someone that God actually may be using and could use so, so don't think that James gives these words apart from historical settings. He's probably thinking about situations like chapter 2 in which one person would treat people differently 
And their words were the way it was seen. Bless one, curse the other. So verse 10 says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Notice this statement, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Then he asks some more questions. And by the way, it would be interesting to just number the amount of questions he asks in this section as well as in this book. James is kind of a rhetorical question kind of guy. He does a lot of his teaching by asking questions that you know the answer already and he kind of gets you to, to this place where you're admitting, oh yeah, that's true. Here's one of them. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The answer is what? No. So here's a singular spring, but giving two types of water that would demand two sources. He's saying that can't happen. It's one spring. It will give one or the other. It should give one or the other. He says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Again, the example is from the water and the tree here that you can't have a singular entity giving inconsistent types of fruit or, or water. And so he ends with this statement, by the way. Neither then can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's he saying with this? He's asking these questions. He's giving these metaphors. He makes a statement. Here's what I think he's saying. That pattern, listen very carefully, pattern indicates source. Now, this is a refreshing bit of good news. Because if you recall, according to verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> Don't you with your tongue? I mean, you can just go ahead and say amen. You can grin there like, Todd, I'm in that boat. I'm rowing that with you. We all stumble. There's not a single person here who hasn't to their spouse or their friend, to a close um, um, worker, a relationship partner like that. I mean, someone in the church, your Lighthouse member, some, there's, not, there's not a single person that said, man, I wish I would have never said that. And you've had to go and repent and apologize. Repent to God. But is that the pattern of your life? For many of you, it is not. Hallelujah. Amen. And what James does in this last illustration is in one sense, he brings hope and encouragement. In the middle of exposing inconsistency, he's saying this, you know what? The truth is, if it's not the pattern, then we know the source is right. Because what you're going to, how do you find out what someone's source is? You look at the normal pattern of production, right? If a tree is just putting out olive trees over, excuse me, olives over and over, if that's a plant, if it's putting that out, guess what kind of plant that is? If a water is consistently bubbling forth fresh water, then you know that's going to be a fresh spring. In other words, you can tell by the normal patterned production what the actual source is. I think he's saying, guys, we can tell by the normal pattern production of your words what the source of your words are. It doesn't mean there aren't moments when your immaturity doesn't show up. Doesn't mean there aren't a, a there isn't a scenario when you don't stumble, you don't either make offend someone offend or, or you don't offend your I mean, those things happen. They're wrong. I'm not giving them a pass. I'm saying they're 
there are moments when our flesh and spirit wage war and the flesh wins. But it isn't the predominant pattern of your life. You're not defined or known by that. And so we would say, wow, the source of your life is God. You're in a battle and you're not, you're not batting a thousand, but it's so good that the normal pattern production seems to be that of, of God working through your mouth and your tongue. Does that make sense? And I want you to be encouraged because I, I, all week I've been thinking, man, how do I bring this text to a people that I dearly love and yet we all are under the weight of like, wow, I, I failed the test when I heard the title of the sermon. <laughs> I prayed last night, in fact, with our family. I said, God, help me to be able to communicate this way because I, I know I have failed this test. I mean, there are people in this room that I have offended with my, with my words. I know I have. You go, you try to make it right, but you know what's sad is the human mind, is, as much as we love a good memory, it can't forget some things. And so inten- and forgiveness is intentional. It's repeated. It has to be realized that way, but our minds sometimes don't forget, do they? Can you nod with me? Can somebody else agree? You remember things. And so love has to be greater than what we remember about some things and realize, you know what? That was their flesh. It's not them. That was a bad moment for them when they gave into the to the flesh. But normally, the course of their life has been a tongue or a mouth under God's influence. So, I think this last observation about inconsistency is, is helpful, believe it or not, because James shows us that what he's asking for is, is, is an observation of a patterned production to find out what your source is. Now, here's what Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark 7. You might want to make note of those two chapters because in your Lighthouse discussions or around your dinner table or even personal devotions, this is a good chapter to reference. Matthew 15, Mark 7. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Okay, and I could stop there and talk about the whole eating thing, but I won't, all right? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. He said it is what comes out of a man. So you think, well, how does that work? And then he says, for out of the heart proceeds. He lists off all these sins. It's incredible. By the way, in that list, there are a number of ones that are tongue-related. Slander is mentioned in there. So what's he saying? He says that it's not what you attach to your body or that you come in contact with in some ways. That's not what makes you defiled. It's your heart. That's the issue. And when your heart is defiled, when the source of your life is wrong from the get-go, everything that comes out will be wrong from in the out-go. Does that make sense? That's what's going to happen. And so he's saying the real answer to outside external issues is not to try to fix it with spiritual duct tape. The answer is to deal with the heart. And I think that would be very true with the tongue. The answer is not to try to figure out a man-made human way to tame your tongue. James says, no human being can do that. The answer is to look inside at the source and say, it's the reason I am, watch this, consistently inconsistent. (laughs) If the reason that the, the pattern production seems to be different than what a child of God should sound like and live like, if the reason is that I've got a hard problem, let's start by dealing with that. 
That's what defiles a person. James is making the same type of statement here. You've got to deal with the source. How do you know what the source is? By looking at the patterned production. What's the normal type of language and words that come out of your mouth? So the problem of inconsistency exposed. Any questions about that section of Scripture? Let's take maybe one or two if we can. The tongue is a double-edged sword, but speaking truth may still be words of hurt to some people. How do we reconcile this? Wow, that's a great question. Because I, by no means, am asking you to refrain from speaking truth. Paul did say in Ephesians, we're to speak the truth in love. That could be even a relative term to some people. Well, I believe it's loving to say it like this, and someone else, well, I don't think that's very loving, you know. This is a great question. Um, Here's probably some personal advice on this question. And I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brain. I think my scriptures I can use to bring into this. Um, but I, I think if you, can build a long, if you can build a long runway to land the plane of your words, it's going to help. Most of the issues that are misheard are timing issues. They may be choice of words issues, and they could be issues where you're actually wrong, and so that's corrected. But in our relationship, I'll just start with my wife. That's, I'm sure that's the one that I've hurt the most with my words. We're together the most. We've said the most words to each other, and I'm sure that's happened. Most of my sin has occurred in timing areas. I just wasn't aware of situations. I wasn't reading her well. I wasn't living with her based on knowledge as Peter instructs husbands to do. And so my own goal was, I got to get this out there. I got to get out there now. And I'm going to come at this. I'm going to deal with this. And so I'm crash landing a plane in her airport. And she's like, you know, I have a runway. <laughs> can, can, we, can we talk about this? Or, can, or there's information I didn't know. Again, it all comes back to like maybe asking questions, building a runway. So there's a lot of answers to this, and I'm sure there's men and women much greater in their knowledge of this than me. I would just say, um, if you think you're going to have words that hurt, prepare and build a runway and go into that within a lot of humility. I personally believe surprises are only good when it comes to romance. Okay? <laughs> Apart from that, just try not to surprise people in a way that comes off arrogantly, proud, and i got to just be honest with you here. I'll just push pause and share this. I think this is one of the areas that I'm trying to continually work on with our elders. And we have many elders who have really helped me in this area. And it's a hard corner for me to turn. But when you've been thinking about something for months or for years, even for weeks, and maybe there's a few elders in on it, but not the whole team, and then you bring to them at a meeting, you say, oh, by the way, here's something to think about. And you just kind of lay it on them. And then you expect them in 10, 15 minutes to kind of get to where you were or even to process. I mean, they don't get where you are. Just even talk about it knowledgeably in a matter of minutes and you've been thinking about it for weeks. That's not building a very good runway. I just admit that to you. It's not. And they've spoken well into my life saying, Todd, we need more time at times. Not with everything, but with bigger issues. And they've been very gentle and gracious to me. It's not trying to hinder leadership. I'm not trying to hinder their leadership. But it's an honest assessment that sometimes a runway would help all of us kind of get there on the same page a little better. Does that make sense? 
I think the same thing's true in relationships as well with, with our spouses and with our kids. Just try to build a runway um, and then land the plane when you've got to say some hard things. Um, good question. It's a good question. And I'm sure there's some better answers. If you have some, feel free to email them to me. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. We might could even use you as a guest blogger one day. That'd be awesome. Wouldn't it? Have you help us with that issue? Is there another question, Ryan? Okay. So we've seen two things in the text. Just to take the text as it is, we've seen that he states this principle of proportion. Little things actually can have a big impact. Your tongue is one of them. So, six words, say it with me. Control your tongue, control your life. And then he talks about the inconsistency, and he exposes that problem. And he teaches us that really... Even in the middle of that, don't let your momentary lapses, and we'll still call that sin, which needs repented of and dealt with, but don't let a momentary lapse, you know, deceive you. What we're looking at here is a, a pattern. What is the normal pattern production? Because, remember, pattern indicates source, all right? So how can we take all that and try to put a bow on it? What can we do to put a handle on that to say, okay, how can I take this home with me? Well, let's be real captain of the obvious and just put, a few, put this in a few words. You ready? Read with me, would you? Your little tongue has great big power. So use it carefully, constructively, and consistently. This is what I think he says in these 12 verses. In fact, if you were to ask me to put verses to these three C's, being a really good pastor who loves alliteration, right? Here's what I'd say. He talks about using your tongue carefully in verses, what, 1 through about 5? That's the warning to teachers, right? He talks about using your tongue constructively in verses 6 or 8, the idea of a fire, how it can destroy. So don't go down that road. Then he talks about using your tongue consistently saying that this, there's a problem when we do two things from the, same, from the same person. It shouldn't be that way. So deal with the inside issue, the source matter, and let God use your tongue consistently. So I think we can say this as a textually rooted statement, and yet it's easy to grab, easy to kind of remember. So could you say it with me one more time? Your little tongue has great big power. So use it carefully, constructively, and consistently. Now, as I mentioned to you, how to do this uh, is going to be something we'll talk more about next week and even the following week. Next week, Travis is going to speak at our family service about the wisdom that comes from above, beginning in verse 13, which I think is a direct um, line to how we deal with our tongue. We have to have God's wisdom on it. Amen? We have to have His input, and we don't need to depend on man's um, fleshly wisdom. So he's going to talk a bit about that. And then the following week, we're going to look at what Solomon would teach us about both of these, God's wisdom and words. We're going to take some time to go to Proverbs and, and look at maybe some, some uh, practical things and ways to get our tongues under control by God's power. But I do want to do this today, though. I do want to hear the Word of God on this issue in a few Scripture passages and let this kind of weigh on you for a while, all right? Here's what Solomon says about the tongue. We'll use one from Paul, but I want us to read together out loud just some scriptures about the tongue and let the Holy Spirit begin the work of sanctification in us, of getting our tongues under control, appropriate use, 
learning how to use them the right way. So can you just together read some verses with me? And then we'll end with one from the Old Testament. I think it will kind of be a, a source of encouragement for you as well. Here's one from Psalm 141. Read with me, would you? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Amen. That's a great prayer to pray this week, isn't it? Maybe just every morning, just have that verse jotted down or marked and just say that today, Lord, set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a great heartfelt prayer. Here's one. Proverbs ten nineteen. read with me. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Yeah, it's really good advice. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, a soft answer, read together, would you? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Here's something that my son told me recently, which was, I thought, so insightful. We know it, but he was explaining a story that happened to him recently in which he just said, I had to obey this verse, Dad. He said, I was not responsible for their action, but I was for my reaction. Now, you know that. You've heard that for years. You've probably said that to your children. But to see that lived out in a young man's life, I was like, wow, that's, I just need to have that same mentality. And sometimes I want to control their action by my reaction. You don't want to kind of nip something in the bud or deal with it or wrangle it. Or... But the truth is perhaps a reaction that would be more towards kindness and gentleness is a better first reaction. And then you have to maybe be able to run away and talk about things. I'm not saying avoid truth at all. It's just that initial response often sets the template, doesn't it, for future conversations. So Solomon says to us, read again, with you? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Let's read one more, can we? Here's Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Probably the most succinct verse on how to talk in the entire New Testament is right here. We have no room for corrupt talk, so we have the goal stated. We have the reason we are to talk, to build up, and we have the freedom to make that determination based on the situation, don't we? What needs to be said? Let's see what's in, what the needs are. Our radars are on, then we speak words, Use the tools God's given us with our words to build that up with the goal being that we give grace to those who hear. This is what God's after. And this is what James, this whole idea of the tongues, what James addresses here in chapter 3. And it's spoken of a lot in the Bible. When you see these passages and you see James 3, you, you, you probably are like me. You're probably like, man, Todd, this, is a, this, is, this weighs on me. I mean, I've, I've not, maybe some of you are like, I've not done well in this. And you're next to the person, namely your spouse, and they're like, yeah, you've not done well with this. The truth is, for every, for every elbow that gets nudged this morning, there's another one the other way. And all of us have stumbled in this. My guess is that even as I've spoken this morning, some of you have thought of ways in which the person near you has offended you, hurt you. It may have been you've thought of a time I hurt you. I may have looked out and thought of a time you hurt me. I mean, this topic brings up lots of things right just right in front of us, don't, doesn't it? Like, wow, that's, that's just a tough topic. And so guilt 
can tend to be the predominant emotion we leave, we leave with. And if you know anything about me at all, you'll know this. I think guilt is a horrendous motivator. I want to preach my heart out to destroy the guilt of Satan and uplift the glory of God. I want to preach my heart out, yes, to see the Holy Spirit convict us, but not to see Satan corner us and wag a finger at us with guilt. I'd rather see the Holy Spirit's conviction work to bring us in, into view of God's righteousness and forgiveness. So I'm not avoiding truth, but I am adamant that guilt is a terrible motivator. And so we must speak truth, honest preaching about what the Bible says, not to go above it or below it. And so all week I've been thinking, man, how, how, do, I, how do I end this? How do I help a room full of people who I know are going to be where I am? I'm like, man, I have really messed this up. I'm so far from what James 3 talks about. And, and you leave with this droopy face and these saggy shoulders. And God drew my attention to Isaiah 53. And you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm sold out to Christ-centered preaching, all preaching centers on Christ, and all of God's promises are yes in Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything God has promised and done and said. And I got to thinking about, here's Jesus in his trial. Remember, James is about trials and how we respond to those verbally, how well we can stay up under them and not speak against God or even others, not depend on, our, on appearances to meet our needs, but to trust that God will, how that affects our tongue. All this is in play. Here's Jesus in his greatest trial. Ordained by God, yes. Yet, executed by men. Here's what it says about our Lord Jesus Christ. That he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Read the next phrase with me. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Say it with me. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away in his for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Read with me. And there was no deceit in his mouth. I take a lot of comfort in that. When, and I hope I can say this correctly. I think I can when God looks at me, He doesn't see the thousand times I hurt that woman. He doesn't. She remembers them, and I remember them, and I hate them. I hate them. I, I despise them. And I hate the times I hurt you. You know what God sees? A perfect Jesus who never sinned with His mouth. Man, I'm so, so thankful for Jesus Christ, aren't you? I mean, who can attain that? I, man, I'm so far away already. My guess is you are too. But you know what God's looking at? He's looking at the one who stood in for you. I'm not trying to excuse your sin or mine. I'm not trying to give us a pass or, uh, you know, a ticket for loose lips. I'm not doing that. I'm trying to corner guilt and keep Satan away from, from motivating you in the wrong way. 
and trying to get you to see, you know, God's got the power to give you to master your tongue, but it's going to be rooted and found in Jesus Christ who has already showed us what it means to perfectly fulfill all of God's requirements. He never sinned with his mouth. Deceit was not found in there. And in his greatest trial, he did not respond wrongly. He did not accuse God falsely. He didn't charge God. Man, I'm, man, thank God for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, even the many times I sinned with my lips. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? Well, I am. So this morning, you can leave looking at your long list of grievances with your tongue. You can. And your shoulders will be sunk, your face low. Or instead, you can look at the sacrifice of Christ by the one who never wants sin with his lips and realize that your fresh start, your new beginning is found in that. And that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And I'm, I'm really glad about that. Can we pray together? This morning as the band comes, I'm just going to leave you a few minutes to hear, just to think about what we just read and, and talked about. I've preached on the tongue many times. This is the first time I've ended a message on the tongue with Isaiah 53, okay? But what an encouragement it was to me this week to bask in the joy of the justification that Jesus Christ had taken all of my sin and credited me with all of Christ's righteousness. And that list includes every single sin that I committed with my mouth. It just made repentance and confession all the more joyful. It makes healing back your chest cavity having God do surgery on you it makes that all the more profitable because God isn't holding you up to your list he's not checking it once and twice seeing all the places you've messed up fingering you and cornering you to finally get it right Instead, he sees Christ. And somehow, in ways I can't explain but fully believe, God, God sees me as righteous. He sees me as just and clean. But I know that's so far from how I live sometimes. And at that moment, my heart burst with praise to God. I want you to join me in that place. And you remember, you remember like me, you remember all the th- times 
You've hurt people and said something that you wish you hadn't have said. You wanted to pull those words back into your mouth. But God casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. And so could I ask you to take your eyes for a little bit off of yourself and yes, even off of all the ways in some way, in some sense that that you just don't match up right now. And would you instead look at the glorious sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf for the very sins of your mouth that right now want to distract you and get you off focus? And will you just thank God? Will you thank God for forgiveness? And in repentance and prayer, in confession and humility, embrace your place as God's child. I think there is more motivation in that place than in a thousand guilt trips. Spirit. Prove powerful and move powerfully among us. Lifting up Jesus. Would you stand with me, church? pardon my motion here for a moment as you come to the table this morning all of your sins have been nailed to the cross and they've been blotted out by the blood of Jesus and that's what we're remembering this morning so let's leave committed to living like Jesus yes but not from any sense of human uh, achievement or power but all because Jesus took every single sin and he nailed it to the cross let's rest there for a bit can we if you're a guest go to the tables with us if you are a believer enjoy this spiritual meal we're going to share together which remembers Jesus and celebrates him and his work for us bring your elements back to your seat In a moment, one of our men will come and lead you through it. Then we're going to sing and we're going to praise the Lord some more. And I trust that as you do, the Holy Spirit, though I think at times He may bring some things to your mind about the sin you're struggling with, yes. But I pray overriding that will be the completely sufficient, satisfactory death of Christ on your behalf that gives you the power to overcome that very sin. And may you rejoice in God with each other this morning.